0: You're listening to the Scotts Hill podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scotts Hill Baptist Church, visit our website at scottshill.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. You know, I've often watched television. I've seen a number of different roles on TV when it comes down to news media and things like that. And I often thought it might not be a bad thing and maybe even a pleasant thing to be a weatherman. I mean, when you think about being a weatherman, you've got a pretty easy job, don't you? You don't have to necessarily talk about crises, you don't have to talk about politics, you don't have to talk about crime raid, you don't have to talk about all the disastrous things unless there's some kind of a hurricane, but for the most part, you're just talking about weather. You get to tell people what it's going to be like in the course of the week. You get to tell them that it's going to be a beautiful day, cool fronts coming through, and everybody's going to enjoy outside. You can talk about we've had a drought and the rain is coming. It's going to be good news. And the wonderful thing about being a weatherman is you only have to be right half the time. And your job is still secure. You can be 50% wrong and you still have a job week in and week out. I thought being a weatherman would really be a pleasant job. Until I started listening to what weathermen say about how people treat them that there are a lot of weathermen who say they receive phone calls with people being very obscene because of the forecast that they gave. Or sometimes they'll receive voicemail, people cursing them out because he messed up their weekend. One weatherman said he even received a noose in the mail, a, a, a hangman's noose, because he had messed up somebody's wedding plans for the weekend, like he's the one that caused the weather to happen. And when I think about being a weatherman, and I think about being a pastor, it's kind of like that sometimes. I didn't write the Bible. God didn't ask my opinion when he wrote the scriptures. God called me as a pastor to declare what he has said, and to state plainly what his truth is from his word. Now there are times When I can proclaim those truths and people are really excited about it. There are times where God's words are comforting. There's times where God's word brings clarity to our minds and our hearts. There are times when God's word will give us uh, um, a sense of peace and calm. But then there's some times when we read God's word that it's challenging. When we read God's word, we might not like what he says, that when we hear what he has to say about certain issues, that it might be contrary to culture where we are. And sometimes when a pastor is speaking those truths, sometimes it comes back to us. And sometimes when we deal with very controversial and difficult subjects, sometimes people are very confused and can be very frustrated with that, if it doesn't fit your theological grid, or if it makes you uncomfortable. Today, I am not a weatherman, I'm a pastor. And God has brought to us in our study one of the most controversial and one of the most difficult passages in First Timothy, if not all the Bible. And it's one of these hot button issues of our culture. It's dealing with the roles of men and women, both in marriage and in the life of the church. And it's a hot-button issue today because there's so many different words that people use to describe this, and it's created a lot of toxicity among people, particularly in the body of Christ. Words like complementarianism, feminism, chauvinism, patriarchy, egalitarianism. And people have taken all kinds of different positions on these. And as a result, a lot of churches have been divided over this issue. Conventions and denominations have been split over this issue. And many churches are putting emphasis on this in such a way that it has created a division within the body. And when you add to that a very difficult passage to interpret and a difficult passage to teach on brings even more confusion. So if you would, take your Bibles, open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And what we want to do is we want to look at this passage and what the Apostle Paul has to say about order in the life of the church. Now remember, Paul is writing this epistle to Timothy to give him instructions on how the church should be guided, the church should guard the gospel and how the church is to be governed and in the midst of all of that he's correcting some problems in the life of the church so here's what we're gonna do we're gonna read the passage first and for some of you you're gonna be like what what does that mean others of you are gonna be like I've read it before and I still don't know what it means And then we're gonna look at some principles for interpreting God's word. And then we're gonna look at three charges that Paul gives to the church with respect to this passage. So here's what the apostle Paul writes. Writing to Timothy, chapter two, beginning in verse eight. I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy to instruct the church in this matter. And so you might be thinking, okay, I don't get it. It sounds to me like the Apostle Paul is not a fan of women. It sounds like he might even be anti-women. So how do we take this passage? How do we understand this in light of the culture and where we are today? Well, you have to begin by understanding two key principles when it comes to interpreting scripture. And so the teacher in me wants to come out right now, and I want to share with you two key principles that John Stott has helped me with many years ago. And if we're going to look at scripture, we have to understand these principles of interpretation. Here's the first thing John Stott says is the hermeneutical principle. The hermeneutical principle. What does it mean, the hermeneutical principle? Hermeneutics is simply the art or the science of being able to interpret scripture. When we look at the hermeneutical principle, what we see is that the written word is God's word and it is true and it's accurate in all matters of life. And as you read through the pages of Scripture, there is an underlining consistency with the Word of God. And as we look at God's Word, we understand that we have to see that Scripture always interprets Scripture. And when Scripture interprets Scripture, we have to look at the totality of God's Word in the broadest sense and what He means. In other words, Let's look at the passage we just read in light of the hermeneutical lens. When we look at what Paul writes, we cannot isolate basic truths, and that's this, that there is no difference between the sexes when it comes to being created in the image of God and when it comes to understanding the redemption and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. There is absolutely no difference between the sexes and that. There is no difference in gender with respect to superiority or inferiority. We never find that in the pages of Scripture. We find in Galatians 3.28 that there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave or free. In Christ, we are all equal. We also look through the hermeneutical lens and we understand this, that in the creative order, God has given spiritual authority to men of both the home and in the life of the church. And so when you look at the broad hermeneutical lens in this, you have to see that the totality of God's word speaks of the equal value of both men and women, yet with distinctive roles. That's the hermeneutical It's universal, it is normative and it's timeless. But there's a second aspect that we have to look at, the historical and the cultural principle. When we look at the historic and the cultural principle, we understand this, God never speaks his word in a vacuum. He always speaks in context of history and he always speaks in context of culture. God does not give culture-free truth to humanity but instead he stoops to our level and he enters into our history and he understands our culture and he communicates in our language in a way that we understand relative to truth. So God speaks in the midst of culture. Now here's the thing we have to understand hermeneutical principles are universal, normative, and timeless. Cultural principles are local and limited. They are not timeless. So here's the danger. We got to balance both of those when we look at scripture. We've got to look at the hermeneutical. We've got to look at the cultural because if you don't, and if you take the passage like what we're looking at today and you don't combine those two and you isolate it to only what it means in that context, not looking at the total scope of scripture, then you would take this passage and you would understand from a very literal point which would lead you into legalism. In other words, only men can pray and only men can pray with hands lifted up. And women are not to have fancy hairstyles. They're not to wear jewelry. They're not to have bright clothes. And women can never pray and can never teach and can never speak in church. If you take the pure, literal sense of that without the total scope of the scriptures then what you will do is you will create a hierarchy that God never desired in the life of the church, and there will be inferiority and superiority among men and women. Or if you take the culture, you could say, culturally, Paul is writing to a group of people who had a problem, and this is a one-off situation, and it doesn't apply to us. And therefore, we no longer have to live by that mandate. And so we embrace the culture because it's more acceptable in our world. And we put aside the hermeneutical truth and the timeless now has a shelf life. And either way leads you into problems. One leads you into literalism and legalism. The other one leads you into liberalism and license. So we have to combine the two. So as we look at this passage, let's keep in mind the hermeneutical truths that are timeless, the cultural situations that are changeable, and then we look at what God's word says in this. Okay? I'm gonna say, get it. If you get it, say, got it. Okay, you ready? One, two, three, get it? Good, let's move on. Paul gives three charges in this passage. And understanding these things, here is the key. The first charge he gives is to you, men. He gives a charge to us. Here's what he says. The proper actions of Christian men, not to be passive in spiritual matters, but to be leaders and examples. He begins with the men of the church. And when he says that men everywhere pray, this is how he puts it. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. When he says the men should pray, he's not using that in a general sense. He's speaking of biologically born males. The men in the church, the men in the family are to lead the way in being the spiritual leader, the protector, the provider through a servant model to their family and in the life of the church. He's saying, men, everywhere you go, you are to pray. You are to set the example. You are to set the lead. You are to demonstrate what God has called you to do. Now, this is very important. Paul is not saying women are not allowed to pray. It's not what he's saying at all. In fact, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Paul instructs the women in the church in how to pray and how to prophesy. And so nowhere in scripture does God saying that women cannot pray. Some of the greatest prayer warriors that you and I know are women. Some of the greatest people who have prayed in my life have been women who have prayed for my well-being and my protection. But what he's saying here is men, you need to step it up because here's what was happening in Ephesus. There was the worship of Diana, who was a pagan goddess. And in Ephesus, she was the goddess of sexual um, activity. Matter of fact, the statue of her is a statue of a woman with multiple breasts. She was very, very um, immoral, and the people of Ephesus were engaged in that. A lot of the women who serve in the temple of Diana were also prostitutes. And they, were, they practiced temple prostitution so if a man says i'm going to worship the woman knew exactly what he was going to do And he was going to be involved in this pagan worship. Many of the women in the life of that culture were being saved and brought into the church, and they were bringing some of the practices into the church with them. False teachers were misleading them, and women were beginning to take the leadership role over everything in the life of the church, and Paul is calling the men back to the place where they need to be. Here's what they did. They've abdicated their responsibility as spiritual leaders. And Paul is saying, men, you are called be the leaders you are called to set the example we see this all through culture and we see it in history i've served some small churches and i have been in a lot of small churches and what i've noticed in a lot of these small churches are that women take the lead in almost all the ministries you have a prayer meeting all the women show up and very few men show up and the men who do show up very rarely pray i've been on a mission field where all the missionaries were female and they were all women This is not an indictment against women. It is an indictment against the men who refuse to take seriously their spiritual responsibility as leaders. You even look in the Old Testament and the only Old Testament judge that was a female was Deborah. And she was obedient to God. She sought to bless the heart of God. She loved the word of God and God used her. But it was an indictment against the men of that culture who refused to step up and lead. Men, the call is to you to be the spiritual leader of your home. And I will tell you, men, what my wife and what almost every woman I've ever met with desires of her husband. You want to hear it? Here it is. That you pray with them. That you lead them. That you take up the role of the spiritual leader of the home and you serve your wife like Christ served the church and willing to die for her. That's the call and men if you're here this morning and you haven't been doing that let me tell you what not to do don't go home this afternoon create an altar and tell your mom your family come on we're having prayer time I'm leading this thing I'm the spiritual leader no you've not earned that because you've not done that let me tell you what you do you sit down with your wife and you say honey sweetie sugar pie baby whatever you call her and you say I've not really done what I needed to do as a spiritual leader and I really want to lead you Can you help me in this? Can you help me? I want you to hold me accountable. And I want to pray for you. And I want to support you. And I want to be the man that God wants me to be in our home. Man, it begins there. The first charge in all of this is to men that we would not abdicate our responsibility, but we would lead our families well. Now, if you're single moms... You've got the whole ball of wax. You're the spiritual leader of that home. And God will give you the grace to do what you need to do in the midst of that. So the first charge is to men to be active in being leaders. Here's the second charge. The proper attire of Christian women. Not to be focused on outward appearance, but on godliness. Here's the second charge. He moves from charging to men to take action and leading their families well. Now he speaks to women to be careful that your your adorning of yourself is not just simply external, but it's internal. Now, why would he do that? Why would he tell the men to do one thing and the women to do something totally different? Because in that culture, let me remind you, the prostitutes of the temple worship of Diana, they were very elaborate in their dress, They wore braids in their hair with jewels and all kinds of very expensive jewelry and pearls. They would use makeup to the hilt, lining their eyes and their face. They would wear very seductive clothing, and the purpose was always to bring attention to themselves so that they could lure men into evil actions. And every woman in that culture would have known exactly what Paul meant when he said this. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. They would have known exactly. In their mind would have been a picture of the temple prostitutes. And they would have known that if they dressed like that, they would be identifying themselves as with the culture And what is Paul saying to women here? He's saying, listen, let your adornment not be the external that identifies you with culture. Let the adornment of you be a heart of godliness that makes you distinctly different from the culture. That's what he's saying. The word there, adorn, is the Greek word that gives us our English word, cosmetics. And we see it two times, in adorn and what's proper. That means to make yourself ready. So Paul is not against women looking beautiful. He's not. He's not against all of the, he's not saying Christian women should look frumpy. They should look homey. They should look plain. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you should be properly dressed. And you need to make sure that what you wear is not drawing attention to yourself, but attention to Almighty God whom you worship. Let me tell you what the prohibitions are not. He is not saying you can't wear makeup. If you have the freedom to wear makeup, wear makeup. He's not saying you can't have a nice hairstyle. He's not saying you can't wear jewelry. He's not saying you cannot wear nice clothes. He's not saying you cannot wear hills or flats. He might be saying no Crocs involved, I don't know. But he's not given to prohibitions of looking nice. Let me tell you, just as he's saying you shouldn't overdress, he's also saying you shouldn't underdress like people do at Walmart (laughs) during the middle of the day. But you are to make yourself, listen to this, pleasantly ready for what? For worship. For worship. You are to be distinctively different than the world in the way they carry themselves with modesty, with godliness, with self-control. Now, it's not just here. Like he said, men everywhere are to pray. Women, likewise, everywhere you are to dress this way. That means not only in the church, that means outside of the church. That means on the job. That means in a school, in a classroom setting. That means in the marketplace. You should dress in such a way that you are beautiful, but your beauty flows from the inside of godliness that impacts the lives of other people around you. Now, let me just say, ladies, you're to teach your daughters the same thing. The same kind of modesty. The same kind of godliness. When we were at home and my kids, particularly Leslie, when she was little, we did the praise the Lord test. How do we know if a shirt was appropriate? I'd say, let's praise the Lord. She praised the Lord and it was a mid-drift like that. (laughs) Nope, put them down. You can't wear that. And so she got smart. She came in the room one day, I said, let's do the praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord. You know, I said, "No, no, we praise high in this house. Let me quit preaching and, and, and I guess stepping beyond a weatherman now. We already live in a culture that's really difficult to dress modestly at the beach. But ladies, listen to me. Please listen to me. When you dress your daughters and allow them to go to the beach in such a way that they're hardly wearing anything anymore, you need to remember, men are stimulated by sight. Teenage boys are stimulated by sight. And when you send them out like that, you are giving these men and young boys objectifying your daughter and not seeing her as a young girl created in the image of God. And you might say, Well, whose fault is that? Those perverted guys, they got to get their minds out of the gutter. I agree. But the reality is that's true. And when you send them out like that, you are sending them to a world of wolves where they're going to look up and down your daughters. And in their minds, if they had the privilege of making that a reality, would bring shame both to you and to your daughter. Men, you knowing this true, why would you allow your daughters to go out like that because what we're training them is modesty and godliness in the midst of all of these things. So he says, men, it's your responsibility to lead the way in prayer. Ladies, make sure that your dress and your apparel in that culture is something that will bring glory to God and turn people's attentions to him. Now we come to the third charge, and here is where it gets difficult. Number three, the proper attitude of Christian women, not to be assertive, but to be submissive to male leadership in the church. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about, ladies, when it comes to your attitude in the life of the church, and he's remember, he's not talking about the home. He's talking about how we function when we gather together. What is your attitude to be towards male leadership in the life of the church? Here's how he puts it, okay? I know y'all are wondering, how are you gonna handle this? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissive myths. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Some of you right now are thinking, wow, I don't even like the way any of that sounds. And many people would say, well, Paul is just anti-woman here. No, he's not. Paul is radical in the support of women, as we're going to find in a moment, because he's about to say some things that are radical to that culture. Let me tell you four things that he teaches us from this. Number one is this. Women are encouraged to learn biblical truth. He's encouraging women in that culture to learn biblical truth. He says, let a woman learn quietly. Now, you got to understand, in this culture for a woman to learn biblical truth was counter to everything they ever understood. Jewish men never taught their wives or women biblical truth or doctrine rabbis would never take a woman as a student because he considered her to be a waste of time and not being able to discern truth greeks in this culture the women weren't even allowed to leave their homes in the course of the day they couldn't study they couldn't have social gatherings they were locked into their homes And the Muslims in that world and in this world today, if you wanted to see what it looked like, you go to a place where they practice Sharia law. That was the culture then when Paul is writing to this. And so when he says women are to learn, wow, this was radical. And here's what he's encouraging. Women, you learn God's word. You study God's word. You understand doctrine. You understand theology. You grow in all the areas of knowledge and grace that you can. And so he's encouraging women to really grow deep into the truths of God's word. You see, because the Lord Jesus took women and he discipled them. In the book of, uh, in all the Old Testament, the Mosaic law was written not just to men, but also to women. The word in the Greek for brothers actually is brothers and sisters. So every single letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church were for both men and for women, encouraging them to learn and to flourish in the truth of God's word. Now he says to learn quietly. You say, what does that mean? That means actually the word quiet is, an, is, is really an unfortunate translation. It really means with tranquility and peace in your heart. It means you're to learn in such a way that you're not going to be assertive or you're not going to be aggressive or you're not going to be divisive in what you do. You're going to learn the truth of God's word and doctrine as the Holy Spirit leads you into that. Here's the second thing he's saying, that women are called to be submissive. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, the word submissive has never been a popular term. It's not politically correct in our culture, and it certainly is not culturally appropriate in where we live today. Submissiveness? Oh, no. You know why? Because when you think of submissiveness, let's be honest, you think of superiority and inferiority. The word submissive literally means to rank under. And it just simply means that you're ranking under someone. It's a military term. A private ranks under a captain. A captain ranks under a general. Those who rank under are not less in value or ability. The issue is just simply order and authority. And so when he says that you're to be submissive, it means you are to voluntarily rank under the male spiritual leadership in the church. That's the context of this. Now, we might say, I don't like the word submissive. That's the character of God. Think of the whole trinity. We see a beautiful picture of mutual submission in the trinity, The father sends the son. The son submits to the father and comes. The father and the son sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit submits to the father and to the son. Is the Holy Spirit inferior to the father? No. Is the son inferior to the Holy Spirit and the father? No. They're all equal. They have distinctively different roles. And when it comes to the issue of submissiveness, here's what Paul says. Women, there are only two areas that you are to submit in. Besides all of us submitting to the word of God, ladies listen, you're to submit to your husband and you're to submit to the male leadership of the church. That's all. No other man has the right to have you submit to him other than your husband and the spiritual leadership of the church and the spiritual leadership of the church would go through your husband in dealing with issues. And that's it if some man in the life of this church comes to you and says, listen, I've been watching your life and I think you ought to do this, if he's not a spiritual leader and he's not your husband, he has no right to tell you anything and you have no obligation to submit to that. But in submitting to the leadership of the church, you're putting yourself in a place of voluntarily following the leadership of those who serve you and lead you. That's the context of what he's saying there. Now, He encourages you to learn. He encourages us to submit. But here's the third thing women are not to carry the teaching authority for the church. It means you're not to be in a position where you're in spiritual authority over others in the life of the church. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That quiet we already discussed, that just means tranquil and a peaceful heart. When he says I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise, those are not two different things. They're one and the same. And here's what he's saying by that. He's not saying you can't teach and you can't exercise authority. What he's saying is this. You cannot teach in a way where you demonstrate spiritual authority over the church in matters of doctrine, direction, and discipline for the church. In other words, you simply cannot serve in the capacity of a pastor in a local church. That is reserved for qualified men who are called, set apart to lead the body. We'll look at that next week when we deal with elders. But what he's saying here is you're just not in that area. Now, let me say what he's not saying. He's not saying you can't teach. Because all through the scriptures, we find illustrations of women teaching. In the Old Testament, both men and women had the responsibility of teaching their kids. In the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila were the ones who taught Apollos the things of Christ, most likely being led by Priscilla. And we find that Paul writes to Titus saying that the women, are to, older women are to teach the younger women in all matters in the life of the church. Women are expected to do the same thing men are expected to do with respect to the gospel, We are all commanded to share the gospel. We're all commanded to be able to tell people about Jesus. We're all commanded to find our spiritual gifts as the Holy Spirit has given them to us and use them in the life of the body. A woman is free to teach, but she is not to teach in a position of like from this platform, giving spiritual authority over the issues of doctrine, direction, and discipline. Other than that, there's the freedom to use your God, Holy Spirit-given gifts in the life of the body. Why? Number four. The reason is because of the order of creation and the order of the fall. This verse trips up a lot of people. And here's what Paul writes. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That sounds like Adam just threw Eve under the bus. That sounds like Paul makes it sound like Eve is the one who's responsible and Paul and Adam is about to get off the hook. Not at all. Because when we look at what he really means here, in the order of creation, in the order of the fall, he helps us to understand this. First, the order of creation demonstrates a complementarian model. When God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Each one in the creation account is created in the image of Almighty God, both men and women each one is created equally important and valuable before Almighty God. But God created Adam first. And before Eve existed, God gave Adam the authority over the garden and he commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. When Eve comes along, he has the authority given by God and he gives the authority to Eve and together they work in taking care of the garden. They take together working and multiplying and filling the earth. They together work in subduing the earth. It is a complementary model where each one of them is created equally in the eyes of God, yet with distinctively different roles. That's it. That's complementarianism. And that was before the fall. But then what happens after the fall? The order of the fall leads to inferior models. Here's what we see some of the problem developing. It was in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Satan comes along. And what does he do? He begins to deceive Eve. And he causes her to question, did God really say this? And he questions God's heart and he questions God's truthfulness. And what does she do? She gives in to the deception and she takes the fruit and she eats it. And then it says this she gave it to her husband who was with her. And you know what happens? Many people say, oh, they just threw Eve under the bus. No, 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 no. She was tricked, she was deceived. But Adam, he knew the command. God gave it to him. And when Eve was tricked and took bite of that fruit and gave it to Adam, when Adam bit of that fruit, he did it with his eyes wide open. And he fully was not tricked, but he willfully disobeyed. And here's what happened. When Satan came up, Adam should have been standing between Eve and the enemy. Adam should have been the one speaking against the enemy. But the silence of Adam put Eve in a vulnerable situation where she was deceived and tricked. And here's what's interesting. God doesn't hold Eve accountable for the sin of mankind. He holds Adam And in the book of Romans chapter five, verse 12, Paul writes that it was one man, Adam, who led all men into sin. And by that sin of Adam, all men die. Here was the problem. Adam abdicated his responsibility, allowed his wife to be in a vulnerable situation where she was deceived and he willfully disobeyed. Then what happened? Blame. Well, it was a woman you gave me, God. (laughs) He blamed God. This woman you gave me, she blamed the serpent. And so there were curses. And as a result of the curses, inferior models for the leadership of the home and the church developed. Let me give them to you. Complementarianism. This is the hermeneutical truth. Paul didn't give in to the culture, he went back to the truth. And the hermeneutical truth is this equal but distinctively different roles. Then what happened comes the curses. In chapter three, verse 16, we find feminism. Your desire shall be for your husband. That's part of the curse. Well, wait, how is my desiring my husband a curse? Well, you don't know my husband, no, no. Um, Desiring means this, to rule over. You're going to want to rule over your husband. So what flows out of that is this issue of feminism that I want to be in charge. And then what flows out of that? Chauvinism or patriarchy. But he shall rule over you. That was never God's intention. God's intention was never feminism or chauvinism. And what we've seen is the battle of the sexes ever since then. And now we've gotten to a place where we say, you know what, let's just jettison the hermeneutical truth. Let's look at some cultural good fit for all of us and we've developed egalitarianism. Equal, but no distinctive differences in the roles to function. And we're just gonna treat everybody as equal. Equal. But the problem is we've settled on a cultural phenomenon rather than the hermeneutical truth. And egalitarianism really puts its emphasis in the culture with the pseudo-hermeneutics to it. But complementarianism is moving us back to what God desires. Now we come to the most confusing verse in all the Bible. Here's what he says in verse 15. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I've struggled with this for years. What in the world is Paul trying to say here? What is the Holy Spirit wanting to teach us? When you get to this point, there are at least four translations of four different opinions. Actually, there are more than four, but let me give you the four basic Um, interpretations that people have given about this verse. Number one, that women will be kept safe in childbearing, that the curse is reversed and that women will be kept safe in childbearing. We know that's not true because we know godly women have died through the ages of giving birth. So it has nothing to do with being kept safe. They're using the word save to preserve rather than salvation. Here's the second one is that women will be saved through fulfilling their responsibility of childbearing if they keep faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So they're saying salvation for women comes through childbearing, which is very confusing because salvation only comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And those women who cannot have children, are you saying they can never be saved? And so there's a problem with that. The third position that many people hold is women will be preserved from insignificance by bearing children. If you wanna feel significant about your role as a Christian woman, then have kids. What about women who can't have kids? Are they always gonna be imperfect? What about women who choose to be single all their life? Are they never gonna be women of significance? That means no sense. Probably this last one is the most clear. Women will be saved through the childbearing. What is the childbearing? When he says childbearing, there's a definite article in front of it, which means they will be saved through the childbirth. Who is the, the childbirth? It's Jesus. The picture is this, and this very clear what Paul says. Our salvation is found only in Christ and is displayed in our faith, love, holiness, and self-control. That's where our salvation is found. It's only in Jesus Christ. It's in the child birth of the Messiah. Where Eve was tricked and deceived and was a transgressor and the curse came with her, through Mary she gave obedience and gave birth to the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and it's through him, while this may have led people into deception and sin, this leads people into freedom and salvation. And regardless of who you are, man, woman, boy, girl, Jesus is our only hope when it comes to salvation. Now, I've shared all of these things. And what I want to share with you is our elders have poured over this for several months. And we've been looking at this situation of complementarianism and egalitarianism and and patriarchy and all the different positions. And we agree with the basic teaching of the hermeneutical principle that every man and woman are created equally in the image of God. Every Christian man and woman are equally at the same place at the foot of the cross. Redemption and salvation are for both of us. And that we are to exist in a complementarian approach where we work together in the life of the church as brothers and sisters, understanding that the structure of the church is primarily giving to qualified men to lead the body spiritually. That's where we are. What does that look like in our church? I want to clarify this for you today. And just the next couple of moments, I want to share with you what our elders have come down to and who we are as a body when it comes to these issues. We put them in several categories, professional and organizational. The roles of senior pastor, associate pastors, assistant pastors, as well as lay pastors and deacons, at this point deacons, because our constitution says that, are to be reserved for qualified men. The Council of Elders vet men for these roles and positions using a formal process. We seek to hire both men and women for every other role for the health of the church. This gives both men and women opportunities to advance and grow in leadership and includes women participating in every level of the organization except for the roles of elder, pastor, and currently deacons. That's the organization structure. We have women who serve as directors. We have women who serve as coordinators. We have women who serves as, serve as administrative assistants. We have one woman that serves as the managed officer. All throughout our organization, we value the gifts and the talents of women, and we use them all throughout. The second category, deals with the gathering, which is what we do on Sunday mornings. Every member of the church body actively participates in our weekend worship services, not just those who are on the platform. The roles of preaching the word of God and administering the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper shall be reserved for elders or pastors. Every other role is open to both men and women. Every member is encouraged to discover, develop, and to deploy his or her spiritual gift for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, when it comes to training... And uh, teaching environments for children and students. Mixed gender teaching environments are overseen by our elders, which means a children's pastor or a student pastor. And they seek out, equip, and utilize gifted men and women to help lead and shape these ministries. Gender-specific teaching environments um, for student ministry and children's ministry will be taught by a leader of the same gender. We have women teaching um, um, girls, we have men teaching boys. We have chosen to do that, so that way we can have a good balance of, of being taught by both sexes. Okay, when it comes to teaching environments for college students and young adults. College and young adult teaching environments are overseen by elders, which would be Garrett Burns, and should seek out, equip, and utilize gifted men and women to help lead, facilitate, and shape these ministries. Mixed-gender environments can be taught by an approved man, which is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, or can be facilitated and discussed based by a woman or a man. So we use both men and women in those settings. When it comes to men's and women's ministry... Men's and women's environments are overseen by elders who should seek out, equip, and utilize gifted men and women to help lead, facilitate, and shape the ministries. Gender-specific teaching environments are taught by a leader of the same gender. We have that in our men's and our women's ministry. What about small groups? When it comes to small groups, all groups and classes are overseen by elders who should seek out, equip, utilize gifted men and women to help lead, facilitate, and shape these ministries. Mixed gender groups can be taught by an approved man or in an approved co-disciple relationship where a man and a woman facilitate the group together. We have multiple groups that participate like that, especially some of our small groups that are off campus. And so what you see is in all of these aspects, Women are free to use their gifts and their talents in the life of the church, with the exception of serving as a pastor and being spiritual authority over the issues of doctrine, discipline, and direction. So what do we do with all this? Let me wrap up three things very quickly. You've been very patient with me. Number one, check your attitude with scripture. Are you defiant or are you compliant? Are you going to follow the hermeneutical principle of what God's timeless word says or am I going to be drawn into the cultural things that are short-lived and changing? We must go back to the hermeneutical and what God wants us to be as men and women for his glory. Second principle, check your attitude towards the opposite sex. Are we cooperative or competitive? We are brothers and sisters together for eternity. And we each have been gifted uniquely by the Spirit of God to use our gifts in a way that we see that they each is valuable, each is affirmed, and each is worthy of the calling that God has in our lives. We serve together in all of these things. And lastly check your attitude with your family are you a burden or a blessing is there a complementary model of your home where you lovingly lead and submit to one another in the fear of Christ or is there a competition trying to get the upper hand this morning before I came here I asked my wife would you please pray over me And she prayed over me. And she prays over me regularly. And we have learned how to complement one another in our marriage in such a way that she is my wife, but she's also my sister, and she's a daughter of God. And I lean heavily into her because of what God's gifts and strengths are and how they fill in the gaps for my many, many weaknesses. I fill in the one gap of her one weakness. She fills in all the others for me. And we're to walk together in that. Now, as your pastor, I've delivered God's word as best I can. I hope it is clear. And I am not a meteorologist because where they can get away with being 50% wrong, no pastor ever can. And so it's my desire to walk carefully with this. So our passion as elders is that we would understand the freedom. And let me say this. If you're a guest of this church today, and it's the first time you've ever been here, here's what I want you to know, that we love each other dearly. That we do not have a battle of the sexes among us. But as brothers and sisters, we walk together for the common cause of the advancement of the gospel. Because Jesus is the answer for all of humanity. So as we continue to walk, let's walk according to the principles even when they're difficult to understand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given us today. Father, enable us to understand the truth of these words and apply them in a way that we honor you and we walk obediently before you. Father, remind us that the most important aspect of our lives is to please you, our Heavenly Father, and to communicate your good news with the world that needs to hear about Jesus Christ and his love for them. And Father, may we do that as brothers and sisters who affirm one another and walk, walk according to your hermeneutical principles of truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash steps Till next time.